0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is April Mays, author of The Mulatto Republic, Class, Race, and Dominican National Identity, published by the University Press of Florida in 2014. This book challenges the received wisdom about anti-Haitianism as one of the prevailing determinants of Dominican racial identities. It is so meticulously researched and crafted, zooming in on a small place as a way of getting at some big and important questions. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it.
1: April, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Alejandra. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: So let's um, start out talking a little bit about your own trajectory. How did you get to be a historian?
1: My goodness. I just loved history and I went to graduate school with the weird notion that I was there because I loved history. I didn't really uh, understand it as a process of professionalization and becoming a, you know, professional historian. So I was a history buff in high school and then I went to college, majored in history and was encouraged by my mentors uh, at Pomona College to consider Uh, pursuing a graduate degree in history, and I applied, and um, that's it. (laughs) Then I decided to go. It was great. So when did
0: you first understand the question of race in the Dominican Republic to be your topic?
1: Oh, that's a good question, too. You know, it... (sighs) I, I would say there's sort of two trajectories. One is is sort of the personal story of that. And then the other is the graduate st- story of that. So I think the personal story is um, coming of age um, with extended uh, family there. And as my own kind of sense of identity and questions about race sort of fluctuated and changed as I grew older um, and I realized there was this sort of, you know, conflict or between what I was sort of experiencing and how I wanted to embrace um, particular kinds of identity, like as a black woman and, and college was a really important time for me to come into feminism and black feminism in particular. And that just didn't jive with a lot of my family members, um, in the US even too. So not just in the in the Dominican Republic. And at this so I realized, huh, why is there this division and how can I sort of navigate that? And then in graduate school, it seemed like the place where we most often talked about race or blackness, you know, was in the Caribbean or in Brazil. It seemed like we could talk about Mexico, we could talk about mainland Latin America and never touch on the topic of, of African descendants. I mean, that's much different now. I think, um, In 2017, than it was in the 1990s, but certainly then. Um, And so I realized well, okay, if I'm going to be a Caribbeanist and focus on the Spanish speaking Caribbean, you know, race is a question that looms large here. but I decided to focus on the Dominican Republic as opposed to Cuba or Puerto Rico, which um, at the time, uh, Dominican history and Dominican studies was was really still embryonic. Um, it has been much more developed since uh, my own my own time in graduate school. So I just sort of put those two things together. That one, you know, this was a space where these questions were really rich and engaging, and. Um, uh, you know, important. And at the same time, the sort of lived experience and questions that I had that were coming to my head as I was growing older and becoming my own person. Um, And those, so the blending of the, of those two trajectories really kind of shaped my, my, my whole question about how to approach the topic.
0: So I want to get in closer to your argument as you develop it in subsequent chapters, but in the introduction, you make it pretty clear that you're pushing it back against the interpretation of Dominican racial ideologies as only anti-Haitian. Um, so how did you arrive at that as your central question?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, it took a while, actually. And it wasn't the, even the question of my that motivated my dissertation. Um, this was very much a question that developed as I revised uh, from the dissertation into the book. And I guess I finally came to that out of a sense of frustration because as I kept reading the literature, it seemed like the only possible national narrative to come out of the Dominican Republic were racist ones. Uh, all national narratives and nationalisms are are racial and racialized. They're not necessarily racist, right? I mean, we get into xenophobia and exclusion, obviously, when we talk about the creation of the nation and who's in and who's out. But I was sort of frustrated by what I felt was a lack of any role models. You know, I think I I make this this sort of – I raise this question in my book when I say something like, if we can't look to – Our own, if we can't look to our own Caribbean intellectual tradition for some of the answers to some of these questions, then I don't know where else we can look. And so I was trying to find in our own intellectual traditions hopeful narratives that might get us out of some of the conundrums around race and nation. So that's why it was important for me to say, okay, sure, there are limitations and problems, and certainly um, you know, errors in some of the ways that some of these thinkers like Bono or like Gregorio Luperon answered these questions. But it's important that we take that we really take into into consideration what they're what they're trying to do in their historical context and not just throw them out and say, well, they're just all anti-Haitian and anti-black because they're they're Hispanicist or because they forward this kind of notion of mulataje, that therefore it's anti-everything else. I was really just trying to suggest, maybe we can go back to our own history to find some good examples and some interesting viewpoints that might help us in our contemporary context and into the future.
0: So place is really important. And the book is largely set in San Pedro de Macorís. Why there? And
1: why did you choose to set it in a small place? Um, because I actually, uh, my dissertation was, was probably the last in this generation, right, of enclave histories. I came, you know, into graduate school at a time when the enclave was still this important uh, sort of uh, conceptual um, uh Idea or conceptual, you know, topic within um, Latin American historiography, particularly in the Caribbean and the Caribbean Rimlands. So, I think more often when we think of enclave economies, we think of Central America, or we think of even Venezuela, like the oil camps, or what have you. Uh, so, part of so I began there, wondering to what extent San Pedro was the sort of, you know, exhibited um, characteristics that we see in other kind of enclave economies. And wrote a dissertation in that mode, and then when I, you know, revised it for uh, the book, um, I decided to stay in San Pedro as opposed to, you know, shifting it in other to other places um, because I realized there, um, if it wasn't a perfect enclave economy, it definitely was this very important transit point. Where a lot of different kinds of people were coming together, and if any place where the question of blackness and foreignness and um, would come up, it would be San Pedro. And interestingly enough, that question wasn't always attached to Haitians. That question, you know, was going to be attached to Afro-Antillian you know, English-speaking Afro-Antilian workers and what have you. It was not going to be just simply um, Black attached to Haitian. So I felt like San Pedro gave me an opportunity to do something a little bit different uh, than other locations uh, in the country.
0: Um so you start out by tracing some 19th century racial ideologies and you mentioned already Pedro Francisco Bono, but also some others and you argue that they offer a possibility of undoing the notion of anti-black Hispanic nationalism. Can you t- talk about that a little bit more and tell us um how you got there and, and what are they do- what are they doing these um these ideologists? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's important um to really when we think, when we talk about the 19th century nationalists, to understand just the con- very, very much so contested and hostile environment in which they're trying to make a case for the nation um, and any nation, but a Dominican nation, in particular, that is a, a place where there's clearly a lot of racial mixture, where there's African ancestry next door to Haiti, which has its own complicated, you know, history with the rest of the empires and the United States and France. And so, in that, in light of that, um, so the first, I, I think the, I, I think my first case was to say, can we just have a little bit of, a little bit more empathy and listen a little bit closer to what they're saying and what and and look at what they're doing, but also remembering the very hostile environment that this is unfolding. Um, And so I think there's something I, I talk about in that chapter, you know, you have Antonio Maceo in Cuba and Gregorio Luperon in the Dominican Republic. And these are men who people look for, you know, look toward to take on the political mantle. And at different points, both of them just kind of retreat and say, you know what, better not me, better someplace, someone else. And that's very much about their, they know that as Black men, if they you know took on too much or what was perceived as too much political power, that could really undermine the entire movement for independence. And it had nothing to do with their ability or their ambitions, but it had everything to do with a hostile environment. So the first thing I wanted to do is I just wanted to make us really aware of the historical context of the 19th century and how difficult it was to make a case for a country like the Dominican Republic to be an independent sovereign free nation and once we are aware then of the historical context then I wanted to say okay so let's look there okay let's look at what they're what they're saying and what they advocate for and I found in Bono and luperón in particular uh, they're very fully aware that Dominicans are who they are they are they're white, they're black, they're in between, and a lot of more in between than not. And they say, and this is a Hispanic nation, we're culturally Hispanic. Um, therefore we speak Spanish, we're Catholic, you know, they sort of give a list of what makes Dominicans what in their minds made Dominicans quote unquote worthy, right, of inclusion among the international order of states. And um they also and on in particular, um sees the Dominican Republic as playing this very important and pivotal role in helping independence movements elsewhere. So at this time, he's very involved in independence in Cuba. And then there's Puerto Rico that's coming online, um, you know, shortly in this period and so what I try to see what I what I see them as trying to do is actually broker a, a sort of nationalism that can transcend the nation that is connect with the independence movements in Cuba and Puerto Rico and really bring the Caribbean together. And I also see that they're you know somewhat limited like why does this have to be Hispanic? Why does this have to be defined um, in in ways that seem to elevate or at least, um, you know, orient themselves around um, Spanish identities or Spanish, you know, cultural things, whether language or religion or what have you. Uh, so I do see where they're they're limited, but I also see, you know, again, given the historical context, you know, what they're trying to broker in this very hostile environment. And I also, and the third thing I wanted people to think about too, was I wanted to see them, um, for readers to see them in conversation with other Dominicans, but also other Haitians who are trying to think through the nation at the same time. And that's why I added Antenor Femen. It was actually one of the reviewers uh, for my book who made this great suggestion. And I went back and looked at some of that literature and Antonorfa Femen is having you know, these similar conversations and he becomes part of the Pan-Antilian um, movement. And he gets in touch with the Spanish speaking um, Uh, complices, right? Um, In that sense. So, you know, he's also asking questions about what is the way forward to for Haiti how can we hold on to what's exceptional about our story and yet cast that story as universal as possible how do we open ourselves up to trade to engagement to interaction but without losing who we are and certainly without you know losing the material what we fought so so hard for in terms of the of the material resources of the nation so these are all questions that across Hispaniola are being asked and answered and I just want Wanted to put those people together because I think they they were listening to each other uh, if not directly certainly indirectly and I wanted to honor that that history by putting them in the same conversation
0: yeah it's really exciting to see the continuity of um, and sort of the conversations that you're engaged with um, engaged in with people like ann Eller and um, Maria Cristina Vomigali and all of the people who are sort of thinking about that island as an entire sort of a whole island and having interaction rather than always only enmity, right? Um, It's a really exciting kind of turn in Hispaniola studies, if you will. Um, So, but at the same time, and this is one of the things that's really nice about your book is it's very rich. Um, and you do point out that there are competing ideologies to the ones that you were just talking about and competing ideologies that were more conducive to white nationalism. Um, so what were those and and who espoused those?
1: So in the book, I focus on um, Galvan, uh, who is really my kind of go to person. Um, Manuel de Jesus Galvan, who's also the author of uh, Enriquillo, who, you know, who that according to Doris Sommer is, is sort of, you know, the foundational fiction uh, within that genre of foundational fiction and fictions in 19th century Latin American uh, literature. Uh, and Galvan is a really interesting uh, person because he's clearly um, not necessarily optimistic that the nation, that the Dominican raza as, and I'm thinking raza in the Spanish sense of the word, not as its English equivalent race, but as the nation can really do it on its own or or else. I mean, he just really, um, when Spain comes back and, and um, annexes the country Uh, in 1861 um, and then leaves. I mean, Galvan is is sort of helping the Spanish government and he's very much, you know, in tune with uh, the Spanish government and the crown and everything else. And it was really actually Teresita Martinez Verne's uh, book, Nation and Citizen, that clued me into a possible explanation. So rather than say Galvan was anti-Black and anti-this just because he was white or even because he may have been more royalist in his orientation. Uh, What Teresita argued was that there was really in the 19th century national debates, there's, I mean, there are really kind of two sides, sort of the optimistic side and a very pessimistic one. And the optimistic side include Bono, Luperon, among other people um, who make this argument like, this: the nation, we can do this. And yes, we're on the forward march of progress. Galvan, uh, and others of his ilk represented a more pessimistic outlook, and one of the ways that they argued for their pessimism was to use these emerging racial and racist arguments. That the reason why the Dominican nation will fail is because there are too many people of African descent. We don't have enough whites. There isn't like a plan for co- you know colonial. Colonialism by whites, or we need a, a, a stronger power, whether it be Spain or Britain or the United States, to help us because our our rasa, our people, are insufficient in and of themselves. So what I so the so for me the the Galvan um, represents that sort of pessimistic outlook in in the sense that he doesn't believe that the Dominican raza as a nation as a people. Um, are a nation yet, and that and that they could sustain their independence or sovereignty uh, without the help of either another empire or without the influx of white immigrants to put the nation on the best course. Whereas Bono and Luperon, for instance, did not hold that idea at all. They were much more optimistic, and and they combated or they used as the pessimists use in their argument a. a A kind of racialist argument to make the opposite point that our mixedness makes us even better equipped to face this future um, to be the nation and to succeed as one. It actually is not a detriment to us.
0: So after you set the stage, kind of ideologically, you move into this future that they're all talking about. And one of the things that happens in that future is the increased presence of the United States, right? And um, you argue um, that that changed not just economic structures, but also social and political structures in a place like San Pedro. Um, and also that it was a regional transformation, and i really i thought that that was really a very useful way to think about um, one of the results of the incursion of the u s into these places. So can you talk a little bit more about who gained power and who lost power in those processes?
1: So yes, so that would be uh, mostly in chapter two, and that for me was actually um one of my favorite chapters uh to write and to um, to write for the dissertation, but also to reimagine for for the book, because it was a chapter where I wanted to include the conversation around peasant rebellion, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that yet. And it wasn't really until the last moment that that really congealed for me. So yes, the incorporation, I use this um, idea of incorporation that actually comes out of U.S. history um, in this chapter. And that's the idea that um, the sort of what becomes kind of a, a corporate industrial model um, at the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century uh, not only happens in the United States, but really becomes a global phenomenon because of, of U.S., market incursions into places like the entire Caribbean and circum-Caribbean region and certainly the the Dominican Republic. And if we were to think of incorporation as a global phenomenon and not just about U.S. companies kind of uh, adopting this different kind of culture and with it certain expectations around masculinity or behavior and certain, you know, protocol and appropriateness of of, of decorum. Um, but if we think of it as a in this global context, then that helps us kind of understand there for some of the changes we see on the ground um, in places where the United States presence really increases. And what's tricky about San Pedro de Macuris, and this takes me back to where I started as someone interested in enclaves, is that San Pedro is not a one company town. It's not like the banana zone and United, you know, fruit company, uh, along Central America. It's, you know, you have all of these sugar estates and they're owned by different boards. And some of them aren't even owned by U S boards either. Not at least initially, you know, some of them are, they come with Cuban money. Uh, some of them are quote unquote Italian, but you know, Italian via Cuba, um, some of them are, are are from Puerto Rico, and then some are uh, based in the United States. So, but eventually most of them will become U.S.-owned um, sugar companies and corporations. So the idea of incorporation couldn't just be a story of, oh, here comes again the U.S. hegemon into this, you know, uh, into the space, and here all these actors, you know, just kind of imposing its, themselves on all these people. It had to be the story had to be told as a, as a both and experience. Yes, there is a severe consolidation of, of sugar cultivation, growing production that happens in the last quarter of the 19th century through the early 20th century. And at the same time, uh, you know, local elites on the ground and also non elite actors. Are navigating and brokering their own kind of uh, responses to to these changes, to this influx of money, to the influx of people, to the influx of technology, to the influx of, of new products, and everything else. So it had to be this both and story. So the folk, so who loses power, who gains power? In the chapter, I argue that in a sense, the economic power. Rests with with foreigners essentially, and their investment boards back in the United States for the most part, in the sense that these are the people who have control over the sugar estates and um, uh, and land, but that the, but that the local political power stays in the hands of local elites. And it transforms from the traditional landed oligarchy to a more professional intellectual class of people by the early 20th century. And with that shift in the local context from a local oligarchy to this sort of professional aspiring class in the city, um, that transformation of power right there shapes another transformation of power, which is the exclusion of of you know militias um, of these groups of organized usually men but sometimes women um, armed you know groups of men. Uh, in the East who had been mobilized for decades. I mean some of them had fought in the war against Spain in 1863 to 1865. Some of them you know 20 years earlier had fought against you know uh, Boyer's forces out of Haiti. So these folks had been mobilized for a long time and had been armed for a while. And whenever there was sort of a revolution, you know these groups would come in, into play. But what what happens eventually is that they become, and this is what I talk about in that chapter, they become bandits and what i find in that transition is not so much a truth about their the nature and character of those groups but really then how the powerful began to to demarcate power that as you are no longer you know a legitimate political actor in this landscape therefore you are abandoned so we will just you know excise you out of this out of this story, uh, we will deal with revolutionaries. We will deal with armed militias who we consider revolutionaries, but we will not deal with with bandits. And so, at that local, at the local level, with the transition of regional power and and city power, um, uh, these rural groups kind of they they find themselves on the outs, and they really have to find their way back in. And so, that's what I I've, I view as that as the violence in the east is very much about uh peasant groups who who lost what they once had and they're trying to find their way back in in this changing circumstance
0: it struck me um when i was reading that 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 one of the benefits of really sort of focusing in and going small is that you can really trace these processes in in concrete terms is were you thinking about that when you were writing and doing the research
1: I was, I was. And I was so lucky to have come across um, uh, notary records to really give me a sense of the story of of transformations in property. Uh, so for example, one of the Gavilleros that comes out in chapter two, towards the end, um, Rincon, you know, we know his story, uh, you know, because he's one of these like, you know, big bandits with a big heart, you know, kind of a Robin Hood sort of character. But it wasn't until I was able to really dig deep into those regional records, notary records, combined with other testimonies, that when I found that story of his about how he lost land, it really, it, it just really kind of, not just symbolized, but it, it just sort of brought that story uh, to life and, and sort of the Kind of the tragedy of his story in that sense, right? Um, it's so because it's so easy to paint the bandit or the gabillero as this as whatever figure we want them to be. Oh, they're the revolutionaries. They're the anti-imperialists. They're the this. They're the that. And at the end of the day, Rincón is a guy who really just he wants to be able to cultivate his land and finds himself just really s- squeezed out. And and then, but not at the same time. A victim or just defeated, and he's going to lay down and let that happen. He's fighting back, um, and so those kinds of that that fine detail. You're absolutely right. You can't get unless you you go in, and it takes things like notary records, surveys, um, you know, those testimonies that you find in in other government. Uh, documents, city council records to really give you a, to, to really get access to some of those stories.
0: I do sense the imprint of Rebecca Scott here on this
1: research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I can't, I cannot deny it. I cannot deny it. She may, she may deny all of us, but I cannot deny, <laughs> deny that about her. She's absolutely all over this.
0: Well, it yields, it yields a great deal. So I think that that's a, uh, I think that's good. Um, So, so in, um, in one of the following chapters, you talk about the ways that elites went about making whiteness uh, in this changing context. And here again, you have another set of sources, including things like clubs and associations and organizations and those, those kinds of things. So what, what did they do and what, what, what's your sense of why they were, why they were doing this?
1: So to answer that question, you may have to remember the question you may have to remind me of the question later. Let me let me talk about what it was like to do research. I lived in San Pedro de Macorís for Gee, over a year. And for that, I have everything to thank Frank Moyapons for driving me to San Pedro one morning, beautiful morning, and introducing me to Dr. Fermín Alvarez, who was sort of this, he's a cardiologist, and hes but he's a history buff and had written books about San Pedro history and had also been uh, a president of the Ateneo. And so, the people. So, in other words, the people who first gave me access to San Pedro history were all people who were in these clubs. <laughs> so I, so I, you know, was able to do the history I was able to do precisely by plugging into these organizational structures. Um, so I have I have those two to thank, and being in San Pedro and and talking to uh, Fermín Alvarez, uh, Jorge Hasim, who was alive at that time. Um, uh, Miguel Phipps, um, Nadal, Walcott, Margarita—I'm forgetting her last name—but there was a whole group of people who began to meet while I was there to talk about San Pedro's very diverse ethnic history and how they could, you know, contribute to a book that was eventually published uh, in San Pedro about that history. So, so part of what of why this chapter exists has everything to do with what I what I lived when I was doing research, uh, in the town and, and I, and the importance that that associational life had in the city then when I was doing research and also in the earlier, in the earlier period, I didn't know what the story was yet, but I knew it was, it was very key. Uh, So I just, I just had to say that because it was, I, 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 I benefited a great deal from the associational life of San Pedro. Not to mention the fact that also another thing that I did, I became very active in the local Episcopal church, which then gave me access to some of the Afro-Antilian history of the town as well, which we'll get to a little bit later. So I actually think that this is, I, I since the book has been out a few years and, you know, people have reviewed it and, you know, there it's been kind of, you know, in the discussion for a little bit. I I almost think that this is one of the points that people miss in the book is this conversation around whiteness. And I don't know if it's because maybe I didn't convince people, maybe I'm not persuasive enough, maybe it was kind of hidden. But I, I think that one of the, of the new... Um, one of the new ideas I bring to this conversation of Dominican race and nation, it's because it's often about why Dominicans hate themselves because and why aren't they black? Why aren't they black? It's always about this blackness context. And I thought, well, well, because it's not about yes, it is about anti-blackness, but it's really about defining whiteness and who's and who's in on on these principles of who counts as white and what whiteness is. So when I came to that, that idea. And then ask the question: Well, can I prove that? I went back to the sources on San Pedro's associational life, and and really, and then and then sort of dug into that, and to look at, um, you know how they did things in the city. And that's where I drew upon, oh my gosh, for this chapter, city council records. Thank goodness. I mean, San Pedro Macorís is probably one of the few Dominican towns, and I hope there are more, I hope I'm wrong, that have preserved their city council records from the first city council meeting, you know, until the present. So I could trace a lot of, you know, just the ideas and um, uh, the ideas that, that they were able to achieve and ideas that weren't <laughs> so good and they weren't able to achieve you know throughout uh, throughout time and over a long period of time and i realized a couple of things i realized that one i felt like this was a group of people who were very um invested in in a notion of civilization in a notion of making the nation in the idea of progress and I didn't want to take that as just, oh, that's just being elites, being elites. They took it very seriously and they considered themselves as a vanguard in that sense. And and that idea that they were this vanguard for creating the foundation upon which a nation could actually take shape was all about, was all related to e- Eugenio Maria de Hostos, the Puerto Rican intellectual, and his idea of mora social, because it's you cannot have the greater pan-atlantic confederation if the nation itself is not is is not prepared is not ready for that so they very they very much felt that their work was in line with preparing the people for this this greater things whether it was dominican nas- nationhood sovereignty but also caribbean sovereignty so they really took that to heart and and they were guided by these principles out of Ostos. And they had all these different clubs. And what I what I realized was, well, they had the Spanish club, they had the Puerto Rican club, they had the Italian club. And I was sort of struck by, well, what was the common conversation? Like how did these very different groups of people um, at the end of the day have these, you know, juegos floriales? How did they, you know, organize? these kind of unifying events, like what became the lingua franca, what became you know the the foundation for their relationships. And it was the Ostos idea on the one hand. And uh this, the same time the other p- argument in this book, it was um that this his that his, you know Hispanic cultural values um, and the elevation of these values, and and you know, plugging yourself into Europeanness, was also this kind of way that these various groups of differently situated foreign elites, local elites, could actually find the common ground to talk across their differences. Uh, had I do, had I had it to do it over again, however, I would have also paid more attention to uh, family. And family dynamics. Because again, in these conversations that I had while I was doing the research, and I would take notes but not really pay attention, and I wish I really had, um, a lot of the, our conversations would revolve around oh, well, you know, so and so who's married to that person. Okay, well, she's the cousin of, you know, and I got these whole genealogies from people, and I realized that folks had started to marry in. Very early on in this process. And I wish I could have you know traced some of those marriages and the creation of families alongside this associational culture to really show how this is what we're talking about is an integration of of these groups of people into what would become like the city's you know elite, intellectual elites, economic elites, political elites. And what provides them sort of a language to come across all these other divides is elevation of everything European. And then in addition to that, you know, eventually their families become one. Um, But I just, I didn't talk about the families in the chapter, but had I do it, had I had, if if I could do it over again, I would certainly uh, include that because that was clearly important. So that's what this chapter is really about is sort of what facilitated these various groups of people to talk to each other. And I said, well, it, seem like they all got together around, you know, elevating things European, elevating things Hispanic, and then acting upon these, you know, assumptions. All right. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, the,
0: the other side of it, right? So you, you, you suggest that some people did have some Haitian migrant workers, but that there were many more Afro-Antilian migrant workers. And if you look at the map, that makes total sense because, It's sort of more on the eastern part of the island. So there are people from Barbados, St. Kitts, St. Thomas, Puerto Rico, etc., etc. So what difference did that make to the way that race and blackness were produced in San Pedro?
1: So the assumption in the historiography is that um, it's almost – yeah, the assumption is – it's almost as though, you know, Haitians come into the Dominican Republic and it's already bad because they're Haitians, right? That, you know, such is the strength of anti-Black Haitianism, anti-Blackness and anti-Haitianism, that Haitians walk into the DR and they're already going to be set up for for failure and attack. Uh, So in other words, there's none of this sort of like, as in the u- literature in the u s, like how Italians became white or how Greeks became white like how do how do people become black, right? how do how do Haitians or Afroenttilians become black or marked as such in these Hispanic lo- locations, right? And so, um that was one thing that struck me, and I thought, well, hmm, and so the difference is that afro uh they have recourse. you know, they have these um, consul officials and representatives that who aren't often their best people to go to, but they do have them and it matters that they have them. And another thing, their access to English, their ability to speak English, even if they don't get the best representation from consular from British consular officers, they are sometimes well represented and advocated for by English-speaking sugar estate managers who you know, really, who will, who like their particular group of Afroentilian workers? So right there, I felt well. The difference is going to be we can't make the assumption that you know Afroentilians coming into the space are already degraded by the fact that they're in this space, right? By the fact that they're working on sugar, on sugar estates, because in fact, yes, a ton of them do cut cane, but a lot of them have these upper level positions where they're engineers and some of them are mid managers and some of them are working in the offices and some of them work in people's homes. So it's not the same kind of story. So we have to actually explain how it is and why it is that they get picked on. Right. How that they that their experience, um, that why they experience the violence that they experience. We cannot make the assumption that they land here and, you know, they're the degraded worker. So I really wanted to to try to write a story where we don't presume that um, that it's, you know, it's it's blackness upon arrival. I actually wanted to talk about its <laughs> creation. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thank you, Tom Guglielmo.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So you close with a chapter on gender and you make a point of saying it's understood not as separate from the race making process, but very much part of it. So what led you, led you to the exploration of gender? Um, was there a set of sources in particular or, or how did you how did you decide to end up there?
1: So again, uh, a lot of the sources came from the city council minutes that I, as I got into the 20th century, I kept seeing this woman pop up in the sources, about, um, Dr. Evangelina Rodriguez. And I was like, what is she doing? And she's, you know, fussing with the ca- city council. Um, the city council actually uh, sponsors her study in France. Uh, so she graduates high school in San Pedro Macorís and then she wants to go to France to get her medical degree. And the city council, when it can, actually pays for her medical school. Uh, I don't know if it pays for it in total, but it, it helps her out with a scholarship. She returns to San Pedro Macorís and then she is on the city council like just about. I mean, so many city council minutes. Oh, here comes Evangelina. She wants money for this. She wants money for that. She wants to build a school. She wants to, you know, do a clinic. She wants to uh, have a a fair in 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 the park, what have you. And I said, huh, I really need to understand her. And then I need to figure out, is she like plugged in with other women. And so that led me to, to investigate her connections with other women in the city, which then revealed, and also Dr. Fermín Alvarez has a book about, um, the first hundred years of education in San Pedro Macorís. Um, and so I found her to be part of a whole generation of women who were the sort of second generation to be trained, um, after Salome Ureña school in Santo Domingo, um, from that idea uh, into the 20th century to be educators and to be social activists and to, you know, take on the world, so to speak. So I was really intrigued by that. And San Pedro uh, also has this unique um, character in that the church wasn't really, at least I didn't really see a lot of evidence of like priests, like Catholic priests coming in and imposing their ideas. It was a pretty secular kind of place. And so I felt that of course, feminism would thrive here because it actually had a space uh, to grow. So I so given the, the significance of Evangelina's work in San Pedro, which connected me back to her own sort of education history, which connected me back to Salome, which then connected me to Petronila Angelica Gomez, the, author, the editor of Femina, the founder and editor of Femina, I felt like, oh, there's a story here. About female activism and feminism, also grappling with these same questions, and I guess um, I was so I was intrigued by it that way. And then, as a feminist scholar, um, for me, the you know the personal is political, right? So the the kind of political developments and, and questions of the state are never are inextricably connected with questions of of women's activism, women's movement, and and women in, in general, sort of the woman question. Uh, in general. And so I came into it um, thinking to myself and presuming that these women are making theory. These women are, um, they're theorizing and forwarding an understanding of the state and of the nation in their work. Uh, They're completely grounded in Ostos ideology. Uh, So let's, let's, you know, track what they do. And so that's what turned me on to them.
0: So, um, uh, before we close, just a couple more questions. So you end up in 1940, and I'm wondering why you chose to end there, and what happens to the DR after, afterwards, <laughs> in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of the legacies of the kinds of things that you look that you looked at in your book.
1: Yeah, so I ended in 1940 because I did not want to write a book about the Trujillo. I did not want to write a book about General Rafael Trujillo's dictatorship and add to that historiography because I really wanted to write about this particular moment um, for me it was just so foundational and so after 19 so after um, after 1930 um, general Rafael Trujillo comes to power um, and then after the 40s I, I think one of the most significant changes because he will stay into power until 1961 but after in the 1940s there's just so much um, one significant changes is that you know Trujillo will pay off the the uh, the Dominican Republic's debt to the United States. He will um, march ahead on with industrialization of the country, really adopting uh, what we in, in Latin American studies call ISI, import substitution, industrialization. This is partly a war, mo- a war measure um, because of World War II, but it's also, I think, where he's thinking conceptually. He'll um, engage reforms for the Dominican peasantry and he'll also take over the uh, sugar production and make that a state enterprise um, with his family as you know mostly the shareholders in that state enterprise so a lot changes after 1940 that I felt that I could not uh, that would be an entirely different book or you know kind of like oh in part two here's this really different kind of story so a lot changes there um so what I I just try to suggest in this study, um, that some of those, uh, like the foundations of some of those changes, especially with respect to how we think about state-driven development and the nation um, all at the same time, really has its, um, its origins uh, in this period.
0: Yeah. So before we close, one last question.
1: What are you working on right now? Are you working on a new project? Yeah. So I, um, we're actually in, in, how do you so, call this? In press. Uh, so <laughs> yes, in press. Um, yeah. So as you were saying, uh, about the development of this sort of Hispaniola, uh, type of type of perspective in the scholarship. Uh, so from 2000 and 2009 and 2010, um, myself and several colleagues, uh, began the first in a series of conferences called Transnational Hispaniola, with precisely the idea of bringing Dominicanist scholars and Haitianist scholars together in conversation to think about can we do this differently, and can we uh, get out of the sort of exceptionalist narratives of both of our of both of our countries and talk across the island as opposed to just talking. To other to the U.S. right from our very different perspectives. So since 2010, we've had three of those conferences. One in the first one in Santo Domingo, the second one at Rutgers University, and the third one was in Haiti. Um, just most recently um, in 20, I'm now forgetting 20. The last time CSA was in Haiti, so that's 2016, I believe. Um, and so we are now publishing the edited volume. Yay! Transnational Hispaniola: New Directions in Haitian and Dominican Studies. That is in press at University of Florida Press. And so we just sent back copy edits and we'll get proofs in February. And so that will be out next year.
0: That's fantastic. I will really look forward to that.
1: Yes, yes. I I look forward to it too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for talking to me, April. Thank you, Alejandra. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.